All right, all right, all right. <clears throat> Let's get fired up here. In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho capitalist perspective. Tonight is episode 68 of the podcast. It can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 68. We're going to be talking about the dude, the dude Reno, the dude himself in The Big Lebowski. It's the 20th anniversary of the movie. came out 20 years ago last week, and uh, what better time to talk about it than now? 20 years too late. How you doing, my friend Robert? Hey, here we are. Let's do it. Let's talk about the dude Reno. Uh, doing all right. Yeah, I'm all juiced up. Um, I'm back, and let's do this. Yeah, I think this is going to be a fun one. Uh, we were talking a little bit pre-show, and that can be found... In our Patreon bonus content at patreon.com slash readrothbard, readrothbard.com slash patreon, or actualanarchy.com slash patreon, uh, you can hear us talking about burritos and the making thereof and some of our initial commentary on The Big Lebowski. But before we get Well, in, and other important secrets of life. Well, all the goods, all the good stuff's behind the paywall. You, you got to pay for it because there's a, a lot of value. I mean, I'm not just going to give away life secrets for free. So cough up just a few bucks. You'll get the secret meaning of life. And then, you know, you're free to essentially ascend to nirvana. But I'm not making any kind of medical claims here, just uh, claims about the universe. They, they cannot be proven, so we're not over-promising anything. Nor it's disproven. All, it's all subjective, really. Subjective value. Oh, they're nihilists. They don't believe in anything, Ronnie. That's right. Donnie. That's right. Well, we're going to cut off your Johnson after a, a moment. We get into our normally friendly version, if you're ready for that, Robert. Do whatever you want. I'm just here alone for the ride. All right, so everyone, this uh, episode for ActualAnarchy is .com slash 68, and for the last nighters, it'll be dash 11, and we're going to get in, into the normie-friendly zone. It's the version of the show that you can share with your friends that doesn't have the anarchy stank on it. So here we go with the last nighters version. Hold on. Hello. 
Hello and welcome to The Last Nighters. We are The Last Nighters talking about The Big Lebowski. This is episode 11. can be found at lastnighters.com slash 11. My name is Daniel and my co-host is Robert. And we're about to get into the Google description of The Big Lebowski. But first, a word from our sponsor, Robert Johnson. How are you doing, sir? Hey. Uh, yeah, the check is in the mail, buddy. I, uh, I'm sure you'll be getting my monies. Um, I'm doing great, buddy. I, uh, yeah, I'll jazz up for this one. Watched the movie last night, as makes sense, as per the show requirements. And, uh, yeah, I'm uh, interested to see what you had to think about that one. But let's, huh. let's, let's, let's do this to Scoobles. We'll do the Scoobles. The Scoo- Scooby Snacks here. The Scooby Description Snacks. All right. The uh, Big Lebowski came out in 1998. Indie film, stoner film, one hour, 59 minutes, 8.2 on IMDb, 81% Rotten Tomatoes, and 87% of Google users like and approve of this movie. And I'm surprised that's not a higher rating. I mean, it's high. Not quite as high as Jeff Lebowski, but, you know, for a cult classic that has so many quotable things going and so many indelible scenes, uh, I, I'm surprised it's not higher than that. But here is the description. Jeff Bridges plays Jeff Lebowski, who insists on being called The Dude, a laid-back, easygoing burnout who happens to have the same name as a millionaire whose wife owes a, lot, owes a lot of dangerous people a whole bunch of money, resulting in The Dude having his rug soiled, sending him spiraling into the Los Angeles underworld. Came out March 6, 19, March 6, 1998. It's the Cohen Brothers box office of $46.2 million. So not super awesome at the box office, though probably made their money back. Uh, but I think this is one of those movies that lived on in the uh, DVD and, and since as a very rewatchable and enjoyable film. Just to do the spoilers all the time, uh, I'm going to give a pretty good review on this thing. But what do you take uh, away from that Google description, Robert? Well, first of all, I just want to say how happy it makes me to know that there is some Google staffer somewhere that has a description, a category of films labeled stoner movie. That just makes me happy that it's hard enough to categorize movies and to have an entire genre called stoner films is, is something. Because I, there are some musical interludes in this movie that are a bit psychedelic, and it's very uh, definitely a, like a pro or at least not a negative you know, anti-drug message that you get out of watching this movie. But I don't know how much of a stoner film it is, other than just you know, dude's overall chill attitude about pretty much everything in the movie. But yeah, it's good. Well, you know, you mind if I do a J? I mean, there's a fair amount of him being uh, mind altered. He even makes reference to it in his uh, discussion with Maude, saying that he needed to be on a very strict drug regimen to the ins and the outs of the case. You know, very, a lot of moving parts here. You're not privy to the new shit. Hey, man, new shit has come to light. Yeah, um, there, there's definitely a lot of drug use in the movie, but I don't know. What, what do you call a, a stoner film? What, what else qualifies? Maybe Dazed and Confused? But oh, why, yeah. what makes that a stoner film? Well, I think just the fact that they're stoned pretty often. So as long as your characters are stoned, it's a stoner film? Well, yeah, you know, this is an interesting angle because I think it takes a little bit more than just being having your characters stoned in the movie. I think it has to do with having the... Um, dialogue and the, the little vignette type scenes that are just rewatchable and enjoyable in different ways when you're inebriated versus not that sort of qualifies it it transcends into full disclosure daniel you watched this movie completely sober recently so i just right. want to point that out so your review is tainted heavily by your unwillingness to watch this movie properly. Well, I'm the yin to your yang. We need to get the two different perspectives on this thing. It's like the two-party system, only we're really of the same bird, um, just like politics, really. Yeah, because there's nothing that says diversity like a two-party system. You get the whole story from the two, which are essentially the one, right? Right, uh, every time, all, all, all the time. So all the best options. So where do you want to start? Do you want to start with, uh, there's not a whole lot of emotional content here, except for when Donnie 
kicks the bucket. Um, yeah, but that, I mean, I mean, yeah. Well, okay. When at the very, very end, the, uh, the, the ashes spreading scene gets a little bit emotional, but then it's immediately undercut by the comedy of the dude getting back, splashed in the face with his ashes. So, I don't know. Yeah, so that was our Not. tears jerked <laughs> at the very end. But let's let's sort of start at the beginning because I think that this is this is a movie that I've watched many times and I don't think if I really ever fully understood it nor really cared to follow the story itself until recently, until watching it for the show. Because it's it's a movie that the scenes, the the bits and parts are almost greater than the movie itself. Like taking them piece by piece are almost strong enough on their own because every scene has something going on that is just hilarious. And I think that when they pieced it together to try to tell this whole story arc, there are some holes and maybe you and, and, and I can discuss and, and maybe we'll figure out how they get from plot point A to C or D. Um, but I just, in my own experience, the overall story didn't really matter so much to me until recently. And I still found the movie enjoyable. Yeah, I, I think if you're watching the movie sober to the point where you care about the story making a whole lot of sense, I think you're doing it wrong. I think, like you said, you need to be, you know, you can, you can do it inebriated and just enjoy each individual scene as the Coen brothers masterfully crafted the comedy and the bizarre. I mean, if you don't get a pleasure out of seeing Totoro on screen in his very first scene, you're doing it wrong. Um, th- this movie is filled with some of the best character actors working in Hollywood with Totoro, Goodman, Bridges, and Buscemi. Um, probably Bridges is probably the most overall accomplished good actor, followed very closely behind by John Goodman, who's also a master. But if you want, you know, just genius character after genius character. And then there's, um, God, who's, who plays Maud? Uh, Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore as Maud is also amazing. Um, and then there's also an appearance by um, Job, isn't it? No, not Job, uh, from Arrested Development as Maud's friend. Um, I forget his name in that show. But uh, all kinds of fun little stuff that you see in this movie, masterfully made by the Coens. Yeah, and Phil Seymour Hoffman's in it, Tara Reid, and uh, just line after line of just hilarious, fun stuff. And one of our previous um, guests on the show, his favorite moment is the laugh that Philip Seymour Hoffman says after Terry Reid offers to suck uh, the dude's cock for $1,000. <laughs> and as he's getting dragged away, he says, I, I just have to fight a cash machine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, comedy gold, comedy gold. <laughs> so Yeah, there's, there's a lot of masterful scenes. Um, you know, Goodman talking in the, in the diner is really strong. Um, anything with a Turo in it, playing Jesus, yeah, just and then and then and then Bridges throughout the whole film, it's fantastic. So and then of course then you got um, Sam, right? The uh, what's his name? Sam Elliott, yeah. Sam Elliott at the book ending the whole story. He's a master. Uh, yeah, it's just filled with. I'm surprised this movie didn't do very well at the box office, but yeah, it's definitely developed a, a cult following since. Yeah, so let's start at the beginning because there's a, a miss communication or misunderstanding because he has the same name as this supposed millionaire. And so these two toughs, one is, uh, they call him the Chinaman. Uh, they break into the dude's apartment and rough him up and, and soil on the rug. And then they discover that, hey, maybe it's the wrong guy. And then they blame him for being the wrong guy and get pissed at him. They're like, thanks a lot, asshole. Yep. Yeah, I like how this movie is all based off of one misunderstanding. Uh, I enjoy that. It sets the whole movie in motion. The, the idea that, that the dude's apartment could be mistaken for a wealthy man's apartment is kind of hilarious. 
I mean, even going into the neighborhood, you would go, eh, I think we probably got the wrong neighborhood. And then you break into the guy's apartment, you're like, yeah, there's really, there's no way it could be this guy. And they still go and assault the guy and intimidate him all the best they can until they finally realize, I mean, these, these, these crooks are so stupid. But it just, it just leads for comedy. Yeah, and I think his name was Wu. And then when they were talking about it at the, at the bowling alley, of course, Goodman's character is like, dude, Chinaman is not the proper nomenclature. And then moments later, he calls him, the Chinaman is not the issue here. So that, was, that stood out to me as like one of those um, progressive holier-than-thou things. Like, oh, you, you, know, you don't say those words, but then uh, the moment later, they end up using the same term, that, you know, the hypocritical thing. I thought that was pretty funny. Sure. Oh, yeah. Well, do you want to talk about the, um, I mean, the ethical, moral implications in the story? I mean, right off the bat, you've got Lebowski, who was attacked by these two thugs. And then he goes to seek recompense by the real Lebowski. And I think the real Lebowski's, or the, the big Lebowski's response is completely apt. Like, I'm sorry, you know, this happened to you, but this has nothing to do with me. I don't owe you anything. Right, yeah. Do I have to recompense anyone whose rug has been miterated upon in this fair city? Yeah, I mean, he's completely right about that. I mean, where does the dude get off asking the Big Lebowski for anything in this situation? Go to the people who violated you. I mean, even if, you know, find them, seek them out, do what you got to do. But where does he get off asking the Big Lebowski for anything? It, it just boggled my mind at the time. Yeah, you know, I think Lebowski, the Big Lebowski, is correct in his questioning. Like, well, Brent told me, and, you know, now you're telling me, and, and what does it have to do with me? But there is a certain connection that I can make, and that is, well, they were trying to get this other, you know, the Big Lebowski. They were trying to attack him because his wife is the one causing all these, you know, debts and everything. And so it's like the ball was in motion, and then the criminals pointed their um, anger and offense in the wrong direction. So you're right, Lebowski, the, the Jeff, about, well, they're both Jeff. Uh, the dude, dude. Sh- dude should be upset with the guys who pissed on his rug. Um, so, but he's also this kind of revolutionary type, like this um, burned out 60s type protester from Seattle 7 and writing manifestos and whatnot, or the, what was it called, the uh, Hampton Concords or something like that. Right, the initial draft, not the, not the second yeah, not the watered Hampton. down version. <laughs> so I can see him having this like sense of entitlement and uh, righteousness and justice being more nebulous rather than uh, purely property rights driven, you know, ethic, I guess. Right. Sure. It's, it's, it's within his character, but if we're anal- analyzing it from our perspective, it's ridiculous. I mean, if anything, he could maybe offer up some information for the Big Lebowski, saying, hey, there's some guys come looking out for you. Um, you know, maybe, or maybe he could sell the information in exchange for uh, a rug cleaning or something. I don't know. But yeah, the, the way the script plays out, I, I thought the dude starts off fairly ridiculous. But, you know, <laughs> he's a stoner the whole movie, so you can't really hold him to the same standards of most normal people, I suppose. Yeah, and I do love that initial meeting between him and the Big Lebowski because he's like, um, do you go out in public dressed like this? Do you go seeking gainful employment dressed like this and <laughs> on a weekday, sir? And uh, the dude's like, what, what day is it? It, it? It's a weekday, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> you just no concept of time, and it sort of reminds me of um, there was a period of time in your life, I think, where you were like, is it, what day is it? I don't even know. Uh, and, and our next show, I think, is going to be <laughs> Billy Madison. There's a beautiful line in that where he goes, what day is it? And Norm MacDonald says, October. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost the same thing here. Oh, good stuff. Yes. Uh, but then uh, the Big Lebowski is like, your revolution is over, sir. You, the bum's lost. Get a job, sir. 
<laughs> and he's not wrong about any of that. No, he's not wrong. I mean, and, and it's very similar with uh, the John Goodman character. You know, am I wrong? Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. You're just an asshole. And I think that the Big Lebowski isn't wrong here, but he is kind of an asshole. He is, but he's absolutely, yeah, he's absolutely in the right. I felt complete solidarity with the Big Lebowski. I mean, when some hippie bum guy comes in accusing you of, or, you know, needing to recompense him for his damaged property, I'd be like, hit the bricks, buddy. I don't owe you anything. What are you talking about? Um, I might, you know, treat him to some, a drink or a beverage and maybe a, a scone or something. But I, you know, and thank him for the information that there are people out there looking for me. But yeah, anyway, um, let's move on, though, because there is one instance, at least one instance, of actual bizarre behavior that it definitely crosses the map. Well, before Walter. we get to that, I do want to. Oh, okay. We, before we more? That, I do want to ask the dude lies to Philip Seymour Hoffman and says, "Oh yeah, the old man said take any rug in the house." So the dude oh, is yes. stealing the rug. Yes, he absolutely is. You're right, and I'm glad you brought that up because I did have that written down. Yeah, then, he commits then, fraud. Yeah, and then Maude assaults him and steals it back. Yeah. Um, but by that time, the Big Lebowski has said, "No, you can keep it." But Maude's response is, I gave that as a gift to my mother. The mother has since died. And my wife brought this up when we were watching the movie. She's like, well, if Maude gave it to her mother and her mother was married to the Big Lebowski and then the wife dies, then shouldn't it be the Big Lebowski's rug? But then later it's revealed that Maude is actually the one in control of all the funds and dad is on an allowance and he's only trying to appear to be rich. And so if Maude was the executor to the estate, then the rug was still hers. And I wondered if you caught wind of any of this can clarify that at all before we get to the Walter over the line smoking. No, that's what you just said is all correct. Although I did not recall all that in as perfect detail as you did being as um, altered state as I was in. <laughs> all right, fair enough. All right, let's get to the line smoky. Um, the what? Over the line smoky. I think that's where. Oh going. yes, yes, yes. So, so Walter is upset. They're they're in a. It's not a league match, but it determines like league placement or something like that, right? Sounds about right. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, they're bowling, and the team they're bowling against, one of the guys goes over the line, maybe. We don't know. We didn't see it, but Walter supposedly does. And they get into a shouting match, whereupon Walter pulls out a pistol and sticks it in the guy's face, essentially threatening to murder him if he doesn't strike the, the eight points off his score. Um, which just gives you an idea of how unstable this Walter character is. I mean, he, he does multiple unhinged things throughout the movie, from uh, throwing his own underwear over the bridge to destroying the Corvette. Um, Packing and then he's, <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, it's, he does all kinds of crazy things, but just the, that initial NAP cross was just so over the top. Um, I, I don't know. What do you even attributed that to? That's like his nom history, his just <laughs> over the top testosterone. I, I don't really know, but it's, is definitely an aggression. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think that he's a, uh, he's a damaged guy, you know, he's, he's got the, the nom stuff, probably some PTSD style. He's conf constantly referencing it. And then he's also gone through a divorce, yet he still goes to the same church that his wife went to. He's still taking care of the dog. She's moved on to another relationship. So there's clearly some issues going on with this guy. And, and he does have a very short fuse and a very explosive temper. And uh, he's quick to anger and quick to violence. And he has some pretty ridiculous uh, schemes where he thinks that that's the quickest way and best way to solve any of the problems that the dude faces. Right. And then when they when they actually come to, I think, who was it? Was it the pacifist? Um, and the dude's talking about there being a pacifist. And 
Walter just thinks that's that's like a mental disorder, which is kind of funny. Because he obviously, yeah, he, he's quick to solve his problems with violence, and he has no problem doing so. He still has that kind of war mentality, the, the direct violent approach is solving problems. Yeah, so then um, right after that, uh, they, they get the call to do the ringer, right? The ringer for the ringer. And he throws his, his whites over the edge and uh, ro- rolls himself out at 15 miles an hour, and the Uzi starts shooting everywhere, and, and the car gets crashed. And this, so they fail, right, at this, um, at this drop and then recovering Bunny Lebowski. And after it's all fucked up, he goes, all right, dude, let's go bowling. Because that's like every time something bad happens, they just go bowling. And so they've got the money in the car in this case. And when they're done bowling, the car's gone because he parked in the handicapped spot. <laughs> so yeah, they either just fail at or basic stolen. human shit. Yeah, it's just bizarre, right? So the car's either towed or stolen. But why would you leave a case of a million dollars inside if, if they believed that there was a million dollars in the, this broken car in the bowling alley? It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Their, their level of folly is, is like cartoonish. Uh, either they're so altered from normal humanity or they're just so stupid. I mean, they're in like what, LA, they they have a car that maybe, maybe their defense is that, Hey, nobody would think to ever look inside this car or steal this car for any kind of valuables. Cause it is just some old POS. Yeah. So they'll just sleep in it or use it for defecation. Right. So, I mean, it's definitely, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I can't really explain that. Um, I think any normal average person would keep the case on them at all times. But so maybe that did that bother you like as a plot point? It bothered me just a little bit. I mean, but it, it's also a par for the course with the dude and how he, he's not all together with it. N- none of the characters are. So it, it doesn't make sense for them to make a whole lot of good decisions. Right. And his, his apartment got tossed several times anyway. So, you know, where would it have been better to have kept the money? Yeah. And the, the dude is so stupid that he puts this two by four to block his door but then the door opens out so it's uh, uh, it's hilarious yeah anyway so what did you take uh on the cops when he was doing his report for the stolen vehicle and then uh he mentions that the rug also got stolen and the cops like oh two cases you know is this a serial serial thing or something and and then maude leaves a message and he goes oh that's one case solved Yeah, I mean, these are funny scenes. I don't know how much you want to analyze them for, like, plot content versus comedy. I don't know. Yeah, I, I wouldn't hold out hope for the credence, though. <laughs> right. Yeah, but I mean, he just I mean we could talk about how inept how, the cops are. I guess, yeah, how useless they are. I mean, they're just, like, historians, of crime historians, right? Yeah, and then there's a scene at the junkyard when he gets his car back, and the cops even joking about how, yeah, they've got detectives working on this <laughs> stolen car case. Yeah, in shifts. <laughs> I mean, it reminds me of uh, being kids when we had our bikes stolen. Well, we kind of gave them away. But it was a fraud case where they promised a certain thing and they didn't deliver. I mean, it really was a a trade. And I remember my father telling me, oh, yeah, there's all kinds of detectives working the case. And I kind of knew he was bullshitting me, but I kind of wanted it to be true, so I didn't press him further on it. But, of course... um, did we ever get those bikes back? Or when we did, they were all destroyed. Is that right? Is that right? Oh man, you're you're going real deep back for me. I I don't remember it at all. You don't remember that at all? You remember the day, right? Like <laughs> when we originally gave them the bikes, like these two girls. We were riding our bikes downtown, and these two girls were walking by, and I forget what they said, but they you know engaged us in conversation, and they proceeded to swindle us out of our bikes. 
because they promised, I forget what they promised, but a certain amount of money. Remember this? This is like a big event. I loved that bike. Yeah, not at all, man. Not at all. Wow. Wow. Were you like stoned our entire childhood? You know, I have a terrible oh. memory, but yeah, this is this is way out of the way out of the bushes, man. I, I don't remember this at all. Though it this doesn't isn't... surprise me to be swindled by a woman. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, this kind of just set up my entire life, you know, just set the tone. But yeah, we uh, they took our bikes and then we had to walk home. And then I don't think we ever got the bikes back. Or if they did, you know, they were all destroyed. I remember like they found them, but they were all had been run over by a car multiple times. And oh, he yeah. just blocked it out. This isn't this isn't triggering any thoughts, huh? Okay, no ringing bells. No, but Good time. you know maybe maybe I, I did block that out because it was so traumatic. But uh, <laughs> speaking of traumatic, let's talk about log jamming. Oh With yeah, Car- good time. Carl Hungus. Good movie. <laughs> I'm here to fix the cobble. Uh-huh. So help me understand this, because eventually the dude figures out that Bunny is in the porn films, and one of the guys who's in the film is one of the nihilists, right? Yeah, he's one of the kidnappers. Yeah, he's one of the quote-unquote kidnappers, and he knows her, she knows him, and it, Maude knows this. And so Maude suspects that, that the Big Lebowski is laundering or embezzling the money to make this payoff, but Bunny is with friends or, you know, with these people that she knows from the porno. And she's just trying to, um, well, I, see, this is where I'm confused. Like, was the Big Lebowski just using her being gone uh, as a, an opportunity, like a crime of opportunity? Or did he put the nihilists up to it and orchestrate this whole thing? And furthermore, even if that were the plan, how would him giving a million dollars falsely, but, you know, taking a million dollars out of the account, and pinning it on um, the dude, how does that prevent the finger from coming back to him? Because he doesn't go to the police with this. And I would think that by not going to the police with this and not having like an official record of it, that the the um, charity or whatever it's called, the Lebowski Foundation, would still be looking at him as like the culprit for this. All I got out of all that word salad of what you said was basically blah, blah, blah. I watched the movie Sober, blah, blah, blah. Feel pity on me. That I was trying to make sense of it all. Because, <laughs> yeah, man, I think if you analyze it like that and try and figure out all the motivations and who knew what, when, and where, it probably doesn't make too much sense. Um, the best answer I could give you was I think it was a crime of opportunity. Uh, the um, the log jamming guy knew that Bunny was out of town and decided to try and maybe get some money. And then Big Lebowski was like, ooh, this is a chance to get money for me too without thinking too far ahead. Like they would never actually ask, you know, cast a whole lot of suspicions on me, I guess, because I'm a Mr. I draw a lot of water in this town, right? I mean, there's that, the sheriff who, or no, that was another guy. That was the other guy. That was the, the log jamming producer guy. But I imagine it's a similar situation for Big Lebowski. Mr. High Reputation wouldn't, wouldn't draw a whole lot of attention to him, especially not from some stoner loser-like dude pointing any fingers. But hey, man, right. but that, I, I just no. think you're doing it wrong. You have a given the money to, to the dude and then having that be your cover story would make it even more suspicious, right? I would hope so. You you, you had this guy be the bag man? Really? Mr. Can't get his shit together at all? Yeah, hey, I got a beverage here, man. I got a beverage here. <laughs> they did not receive the money. Nothing is fucked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, so speaking of out-of-scale responses to things with um, aggression, like Walter with the overline smoky. What do you make of the when the Big Lebowski pulls the dude into the limo and the dude's like, you're not privy to the new shit. And 
the Big Lebowski says, if there's one hair harmed on her little head or another toe, um, then I will reciprocally, you know, give you this ten times the amount of punishment. Um, did you feel like that was um, almost a, dare I say, Ancapistani style of justice? Well, except for the fact that he's committing fraud the entire time. So he's, he's pretending to be upset that the, the dude didn't make the drop, of which there was no drop. And he knew right, it. right. And he knew that there was no money in there. Now, whether he believed that she was actually at risk or hoped that she would be murdered, I don't even know. I'm kind of confused on that part. But there was the I toe, was and that was that was the girlfriend of one of the nihilists. Right, that was like Logjammin's girlfriend. Right, right. And that was to like authenticate that there's really some a person at risk here. Bunny is really in harm's way. And so the Big Lebowski really did think that she was going to die because he knew that he didn't pay the money. Yeah, he was hoping that she would die. He would be done and rid of her. And so he put on a big show of having her be his light of his life and then gave, yeah, uh, you know, dude a bunch of phone books to deliver in lieu of cash and then blame the dude for it. Right, and they, they delivered the whites instead of the phone books. But really, you know, got the same, the same uh, value there. I, I'd probably take the whites, although eh, Walter's whites, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like I said, there's a lot going on in this movie, and I think if you do try to pick it apart, it, it loses a bit of its luster, so it really is meant to be, like you said, ingested a bit, uh, inebriated, and, and just for the scenes and the, and the jokes contained therein. Yeah, and um, watching it last night, I, I remember this movie just kind of ending. There isn't like a big climactic scene, although there is a big fight scene at the end. But it just kind of all of a sudden happens, and it's not like that. This is a movie where there's a you know kind of like a three part, three act structure where you know everything is at risk, and then the hero comes through and does something heroic and that sort of thing. Uh, there's not really so much of that. I remember the movie just kind of going along and then being over all of a sudden. Yeah, but it and does I, get figured out. Like, and it turns out oh, that sure. the, the dude was pretty much right the whole time. Like, she kidnapped herself or didn't even kidnap herself at all. She just, like, up and left for the weekend. Right. And then she showed back up, crashed the car into the fountain and was running around. Um, and the nihilists still want their money. <laughs> right. And at the end, they'll, they'll, they'll settle for just whatever's in your pockets. <laughs> they want to get something out of it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I meant to ask you about that one, like, because Walter's like, no, what's mine is mine. You know, you come and get it, nihilists. Yeah, I thought that was great. That's, that's where Walter shines. Because uh, in, the, in the diner, it's really sad because he's like, the, there's a property rights argument there too, where Walter's causing a disturbance and the lady that works there is like, hey, you keep causing a disturbance, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And Walter's like, this isn't what my buddies died face down in the mud for. They died protecting your freedoms. And I was just like, ugh. Even yeah, I mean, altered, I'm like, you're justifying the Vietnam War as a way of, to have protected the freedoms of American citizens? Are you joking? Who still believes that line of BS? But I guess Walter does. But then, yeah, he shines at the very end where he takes a stand and he's like, no, I'm not giving you anything. And I was, I was cheering on Walter at the end there for sure. Yeah, and he was very, very violent in his response to them. But, I mean, to be fair, they had a sword and they you know, could have uh, easily killed both of them or all three of them. I mean, Donnie died just as a result of all the excitement, which was sad. Right, right. And they're mean to Donnie the whole time. And then in the end, when he's being spread, you know, Walter says mostly nice things about him and then, of course, brings up Vietnam again uh, and then right. dusts the dude fairly uh, 
quite a bit. So that, that was pretty nasty. But um, but yeah, then the movie just kind of ends when they realize that the nihilist, you know, there's not there's no hostage. That's not how this works. Those aren't the rules. And uh, yeah, then it's kind of the end. Yeah, just kind of over. I mean, it's sort of resolved. But yeah, like you said, I mean, you have to. I guess the nihilist got punished in the fight. I guess. Um, the Lebowski doesn't face any repercussions. The big Lebowski doesn't face any repercussions other than having his, his, his irresponsible wife home to cause more trouble for him. Um, the dude is just the same. There's no real character arc with him. He learns some things throughout the movie, but nothing about his like character. He doesn't face any like character growth or anything like that. Uh, the characters are more just, it's more of a slice of life type of movie. Um, but it's really, yeah, you know, it doesn't really work in terms of like character arcs, but it's, it still works as a movie, I guess. It still works as a as a as a collage of scenes and just character actors just chewing scenery. So it's good in that sense. Now, does this line up with most of the other Cohen brothers' work for you, or does it stand out as like better than the rest, or different in any respect, or is it pretty much in line for you? It's it's less of a complete movie than their other work. I think that they've done some really good stuff like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou and Fargo and other things like that. Um, they've had a really varied career. I mean, for them to have done, there's always that little bit of, you know, just kind of like unique, special, like Coen Brothers touch and feel to it. That's just a little bit off. They have their own, you know, unique perspective that they comes across in their work. That's just really fun. But for this, for me, this movie is, yeah, probably like third or fourth on the list of Coen Brother movies, just because they've done such great work. I mean, No Country for Old Men, it's a fantastic movie. Um, and varied, you know, different. I mean, similar to Fargo, I guess, but they do non-standard things. They're not afraid to do just crazy shit that you wouldn't think would work, like in No Country for Old Men, where they kill the main protagonist off-screen. It's just like, what the hell? They'll do, they'll do amazing stuff. And... Yeah, just surprise you, which is one of the things, one of the hallmarks of their work is just surprise, which is, for a jaded moviegoer like myself, is, is really nice. All right, well said. Well, I know we've got a little bit of time left, so um, I'm pretty much through my notes, but do you want to maybe go through some of the characters that you really liked? I know you were talking about Quintana, uh, Jesus Quintana, and uh, maybe just go through some of your favorite moments with each of the characters. Well, sure. Um, my favorite, my favorite, Walter scene is when they're in the, in the, in the diner and they're talking about the toe and the dude is concerned about the toe and the Walter's like, you want a toe? I can get you a toe. I can get you a toe by three o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, who says that kind of thing? Who says, you know, and then it's specific to name like a time at which he could produce a toe for you if you really needed a toe. Uh, it's just comedic genius. Um, uh, Buscemi's character didn't really get a whole lot to do other than just get yelled at. Was, he was more just like a foil for Goodman's character. Um, every, every time Chaturro's on screen, it's magic. He needed to be more in the movie. Um, I mean, the very beginning where he's like licking the bowling ball <laughs> and he's talking about fucking them. Oh, they don't have to fuck them on the weekend or he couldn't fuck them on the, the Shabbos. <laughs> the whole thing about Shabbos, it's all good. Um, and then um, Maud, where she's initially asking him about if he likes sex or not, is really good. And then where the dude's like, man, I'm talking about a rug, man. <laughs> oh, you mean coitus? <laughs> uh, so good. Um, yeah. I mean, those are some of my favorite moments from this movie, but there are just so many to be had. What are some of your favorites, sir? Well, I like the, is this your homework, Larry? And the kid really doesn't know what to say, so 
Goodman gets so upset so quickly. He's like, this kid's stonewalling me, and he goes out and smashes up the car. And, uh, you know, Donnie keeps talking about the In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> Goodman's getting so upset with him. Like, every time Donnie and Goodman are, are interacting, it's Goodman yelling at him, like, you're like a child just walked into a movie. You're out of your helmet, Donnie. Shut the fuck up. Uh, it's, just, right. it's so good, you know, and, and it's like this whole movie is just stuff that you can just replay in your head and, and quote, and it just gives you a chuckle even thinking about it. So it's 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 really good stuff, and I, I think that that really helps with the cult classic aspect of it. Um, there's actually a bar in Reykjavik, Iceland. My wife and I went there about five years ago to, to check out the, the country, and there's a bar themed after Lebowski, and they you know serve up yeah. Caucasians, and they've got bowling alley uh, regalia and, and all that stuff all, all around it, and it, it, I think it's called Lebowski's, and they've got the little Very time, nice. you know, like you can see yourself in the reflection, the time uh, Lebowski Achiever of the Year kind of thing. <laughs> it's, it's good stuff. Um, and this movie also um, features one of the, I don't know, one of my favorite musical interludes of all time um, for Just Dropped In by Kenny Rogers. Um, classic song, and it's done to perfection in this film. Oh, is that no, the another. just checking or seeing what condition my condition was in? I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in, yes. Fantastic musical interlude when the dude has been drugged. Of course, he's yeah. drugged the whole movie, but specifically drugged by... Log jam and producer guy. Yeah, Jack Treehorn. Yeah. Now, was that whole drugging the dude, was that just to, so they could ransack his apartment looking for the money? Dude, don't ask me. I don't know. Because then he just wakes up, you know, outside, just walking down the street in Malibu or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and then he he uh, gets yelled at by the cop and, and says, Excuse, I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. The cop throws the mug at his head. He calls him a yeah. fucking fascist. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just, uh, this is, I feel like this episode is just us like reminiscing about the movie that we just watched. That's pretty much all it is. This is the low point of of our show, but this is such a like a like I said, some of parts movie where you, it's not really worth even talking about the whole thing. It's just fun to laugh about the uh, the moment. I think. Yeah, I mean, did you like that moment when is is pretty much what this movie is really good fodder for. Right, and and it holds up. This is the twenty year twenty year anniversary of it, and we're still laughing about it today. So. Kudos to the to Cohen's. Yeah, I would agree. And, and, and this came out, um, you know, at a time when, when in our lives we were just out of high school and and still in the mode of watching a movie and then quoting it to death. And I feel like that this is one that I still quoted until you know until present day. I mean, even even though I haven't seen it in a few years, I, I've still been quoting it. Especially like, well, that's like your opinion, man. I use that gif all the time on Facebook in debates. I'm trying to debate less on Facebook with people because it's not really all that effective, but it is a, a great gift to use. It's used so useful in so many different situations. Pretty much anytime anybody says anything, you can throw that out there. It's 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 timeless. It's evergreen, and everybody knows what it is from and appreciates it. So you can also use it to lighten the tone. It's good because things can get pretty serious pretty quick on Facebook. I don't know if you've noticed that. Oh yeah, yeah. I also use the uh, that escalated quickly uh, fairly often. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're we're running out of uh, actual content here. Um, so let's get into our final summary and review before we wind the show down. We've been talking for you know just under an hour here, and and I think it might have been fun for some of our audience, but maybe not. So maybe we'll uh, end the uh, suffering and and get into the final summary and review, Robert. Well, if you haven't seen The Big Lebowski by now, what are you waiting for? Uh, Twenty year anniversary here. I imagine this is just one big nostalgia episode because that's basically what it was for us. It's 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 a great genius comedy by some very very talented people. Um, all the actors, the writers, the direction—it's all 
high, 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 high quality. So for me, this movie is like an 8.5, um, and that's really high for a comedy. Um, usually comedies don't, don't hold up over time. I would say like the original Airplane movie, the Naked Gun type series movies, those hold up for me personally because that's uh, that kind of slapstick kind of like stuff really works for me. Um, but a lot of other comedies, not so much, but this one really does, really does hold up. Um, yeah, so like really strong, 8.5, man. Watch it, watch it again, and then again, and then again. Preferably a little bit altered, but, you know, I'll leave that up to your own discretion. Or, or try it, you know, many different ways, and it'll really help the room come together. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it will, even though that's just your opinion. All right, you fucking fascist. Um, I, I I agree. This is a very good movie, but like I said, some is um, the parts are greater than the sum. It's like the the little moments I think stand out, and so you could watch just. It's one of those movies that could just be on, and you could pay attention at any point for five, ten, twenty minutes, and still get an enjoyable experience. You don't need to see the whole movie. Um, of course, I recommend seeing the whole movie. I'm going to put it up there like at a nine just because it has a whole lot of nostalgia for me. And like you were saying, all the character actors and all the, the great moments and the great, great quotable lines and the, and the comedy within the comedy is really strong. And so I highly recommend this one. Agreed. Yeah, it's not necessarily the best scripted like plot wise movie. You're not going to get super excited about, you know, it's not a thriller. It's, it's a different it's a different animal. But of course, I mean, you know that. Why am I even talking? It's it's the Big Lebowski, man. Thanks for listening to the episode. All right, thank you, dudes, and uh, we'll say good night from last night. Here we go. All right, continuing the transmission on the Actual Anarchy podcast. And I forgot to mention, this is uh, episode 11 of The Last Nighters. So, lastnighters.com slash 11. And of uh, the Actual Anarchy podcast, 68. So, any other um, stuff you want to bring up before we wind down this show and potentially do some Kathleen Turner Overdrive that will be available for our Patreon supporters? Um, well, I mean, do you want a toe? Because I can get you a toe. I can, I can get, get you a toe by 3 o'clock. By 3 o'clock. <laughs> I don't know, man. I think we covered it. Um, like I said, there's not a lot to the movie. The, the story is... It's serviceable, but, you know, probably has some holes upon further examination. But I think, yeah, like I said, you know, if you're doing that, you're either like a super fan and you're, you know, if you care enough to really look at it that closely, you already like the movie and you just want it to be like a perfect movie. And I don't think it needs to be in order to be what it is. So it's good stuff. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, and I did actually want to talk a little bit more about the nihilists. Um, oh, yeah. Sure. Because we we barely touched on them during the last night's part, but uh, there, there's a funny story. So Stephen Clyde, he just launched a podcast called the Peace and Liberty Podcast, and I was a guest on there, and, and I think um, you're going to be a guest on there at some point soon. But it's uh, Stephen Clyde, and he and I have been friends on Facebook for a while, and we collaborate quite a bit. He's a writer for the site, actualanarchy.com. And we would often get into these Facebook debates with people and sort of tag team, you know, he'd respond, and then the protect or the uh, you know the status would respond and then I would write something and vice versa and we both ended up debating this nihilist who claimed to have written a book that debunked Rothbard in like half a page <laughs> and you know we of course gave him the whole well why do you care <laughs> and uh, all that good stuff um, and he basically he had self-published a book that ha had not sold to anyone and uh, it was just good times with with the nihilists because they believe in nothing they don't care about anything 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny when uh, you're talking to a nihilist that, you know, nihilist is a very safe position, right? Because you don't actually have to believe in anything or hold any kind of tenets or defend anything, really. But then you actually, if you really follow through on, do you actually believe in anything? You, I mean, it's, it's a contradiction because, I mean, in order to even function in the world, you have to believe that food is going to nourish you and there is a door there and there is stuff underneath my feet. I mean, I, it, it, I don't really entirely, I guess it, there are probably several flavors of nihilism, but if you take it to its logical conclusion, if, if there's nothing you can prove, nothing is true. Is that, is that essentially the tenet? Yeah, I don't fully understand it, but I feel like it's the um, postmodernism which cranked to 11, right? Yeah, I don't like, know, man. Everything's relative. Nothing matters. We're all just dust anyway. Uh, it's just the, the blink of, of an eye, you know, eons, billions of years, infinite space, all well, that I mean, stuff. Well, I mean, I'm sure they're right about some things, but I don't know if the – I mean, to, to what level do they take it? Do they say that, you know, since everything is relative, you can't prove anything, and then therefore what's the point? Is that, is that their position? Uh, yeah, it could be. I mean, I can't really speak for them, and, I, and like I said, I don't fully understand it, but it is something to sort of pick at, and usually they get very upset, and you're like, well, if you're nihilist, you shouldn't care. <laughs> right. Right, so let's be consistent. Um, but I do see the point that, uh, you know, if there is this ever-expanding universe and time is infinite and all of those things, and, and the whole course of human history is, is but a blink on a grain of sand, on a grain of sand, on a sea turtle, that kind of thing, then in that scale, yes, it's inconsequential and insignificant. But on the human scale, the, you know, generations, birth, life, death, um, family, relatives, day-to-day -day interactions, you know, lifespan type stuff, things are hugely important, right? We deal with things every day. We remember lost, one, lost loved ones. We celebrate the birth of new uh, children, all of these things, you know? Um, so I think it, it's a matter of, of the scale at which they're looking at something. Yeah, I mean, certainly they must treasure things in life, right? They have to in order to function. You must have an ordinal preference scale in order to exist. And you, you, you exhibit your ordinal preference scale every second of every day. So either you're a walking contradiction or I'm attributing things to nihilism that aren't attributed to, bill to nihilism. I guess I just don't know enough about the philosophy, if you want to call it, or the lack thereof. I don't know. Well, it's just like our opinion, man. It's true, man. <laughs> All totally, right. Dude. What about, well, what about pacifism, though? Um, I think pacifism is also equally kind of weird and kooky. If you're talking well, about somebody who will not even defend themselves, that's kind of strange. Like even if you're getting attacked or if you're, you know, some loved one is standing right next to you and getting attacked, you're not going to do anything. Is that, is that essentially the philosophy? Uh, it seems to be. Um, I'm, I'm more of an advocate of natural and negative rights. And so the right to defend oneself is perfectly legitimate, right? Because no one has the right to aggress against you. And so yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, though it does seem to be a personal choice that is consistent or congruent with my philosophy, you know? Like, if you choose not to defend yourself, okay. If you choose to defend yourself, okay as well, right? It, it, like, right, doesn't, it doesn't affect you at all. Right. So, you know, I think that they can live in harmony with, with us uh, voluntarist types. But does a pacifist, do they vote? Do they recognize government for what it is? I'd be curious to know that. Yeah, that would be uh, an interesting thing because I think a lot of people don't view voting as violence. I, I tend to because you're trying to inf impose your will upon others uh, through a uh, hier hierarchical, you know, political system that is only meant to divide and create difference and division between people and subjugate 
whatever percentage of people who either voted for the other person or the other um, the other option or didn't vote at all. Right. Yeah. So you have to impose violence to to do those things. I, I do think there is a space for defensive voting, um, but I, I for for me personally, it's it's a very limited and selective thing. It's more like vote yes or no for a increase in your taxes. Well, I would vote no, but. I also feel like voting is, is sort of like legitimizing them in a way, um, you know, because it only encourages them like, oh, look at, you know, this turnout, you know, oh, we must be doing something right. That kind of a thing. Well, yeah, because you can't just say, oh, by the way, this is a protest vote. Oh, by the way, this is a, a defensive vote. Every vote is not seen as that. It's seen as a mandate from whoever to do whatever. I mean, there's, there isn't a politician alive who's won an election and gone, well, I'm probably just a protest candidate. No, it, they see it as this is a mandate from the masses. They want me to lead them. They want me to rule them. Oh, yeah. You see it even with um, people touting how Gary Johnson got more votes than any other prior libertarian presidential candidate. When in all likelihood, he got as many votes as he did, not because of his platform or people believing in him. I mean, sure, there are some people who did that. But I think that more people were so turned off by the leading candidates that they were protest votes in favor of Gary Johnson. And so, you know, but he still uses that as or people talking about him still use it as, oh, see, look how great he did. Yeah. Not how shitty the other candidates were and how obviously he was a protest candidate. You know, and I'm sure there's you know, a mix, you, people, but you're right. There's no way to know. But yeah, I mean, people don't necessarily vote for a candidate so much as they vote against the other candidate because all these politicians, they're all trash and everybody knows it. They're all either bought and paid for or just garbage people. And so people vote against other candidates all the time. But it's never interpreted that way by the politicians and by the mass media. It's always, look at all this popular support for candidate X. Give me a break. So, yeah, voting does nothing but encourage and legitimize the system. And, and it, it, when it's a system of oppression and subjugation, I don't see why people would want to participate in that, especially when it's your own subjugation. All right, so this was our show about the Big Lebowski. Uh, it took a turn here, but maybe we should wind this down and, and perhaps continue this in our Kathleen Turner Overdrive. What do you say? Sure, although I will say that, you know, the Ron Paul moment wouldn't have happened if Ron Paul wasn't in office and didn't have a big televised moment. And he certainly did convert a lot of people because of that. But it's really kind of hypocritical when a candidate runs that says, you know, this whole system is bullshit, but put me in charge of it. It's not a consistent message, but yeah, let's let's move on to to CTO. All right, and, and good call with the with the Ron Paul. I do give him a lot of credit for doing what he did. I'm here because of what he did, and I, I don't think I would have been otherwise. So I think he was effective in lighting that spark, that fire in a lot of people um, to kind of show them the um, what's possible that there is an alternative that is non-coercive it is with sound economics and it is uh actual anarchy which is you know what our show is all about so i give him a pass on that but he's one of the few politicians that i'll give a pass to his son's okay and uh, there's a couple of other congressmen that are they're half decent like uh, massey and um who's the other one anyway any, any of our listeners will know know who who uh, i'm referring to more than i do but let's uh, wind this down. This has been the Actual Anarchy Podcast, talking about The Big Lebowski. Episode 68, we'll be coming back next week with 69, and that's going to be Billy Madison, uh, because I have a toilet sense of humor. So <laughs> final word to Robert, and then we'll play our outro music. It's been an honor and a white privilege talking to you people. Um, thanks for listening to The Big Lebowski. I mean, it's, it was a fun one to do. Uh, yeah, take care of yourselves. Hug somebody. Give them a kiss. Peace out, homies.
the chipmunks. C-H-I-P-M-U-N-K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do, 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 do